Hello, what's going on? My name is Rich Ryan, bringing you another episode of the Reinforced Running Podcast. Today, I have my friend and very trusted coach, Ian Hosick. So, reached out to Ian, want to get him back on the podcast. It's been about a year since he's been on. Really love the, his knowledge and the things that he brings to the table. So, today we're talking all about running biomechanics and form fixes. So, Ian does offer this as a service, and I want you to keep that in mind throughout this whole part because he really drops some incredible information about really some tweaks you need to make, some of the things that you may have heard, and some and just kind of clearing up some of the misconceptions that might be out there about running form in general. So excellent knowledge, really, really reliable stuff that you can put into practice like right now. As soon as you get done with this podcast or if you're running during this podcast, which is a good way to consume this podcast – you can put this in place almost right away and just start thinking about the ways that you can improve your form. But like I said, Ian does offer this as a service on his website. So he, we mentioned that toward the end of the episode, but make sure to take a link, uh, a look at the link in the show notes to get a big gist of what this can do for you and get some professional eyeballs on you if you do want this as uh, part of your practice. Because running form and the biomechanics of it are really, really, really important and can be often overlooked. So without further ado, here we go. Ian Hosick. All right, we're on Ian Alexander Hosick in the house. What's going on? Yo, he only knows my middle name because my email doesn't have my first full name. It has my initials and my last name, and he got confused by it. So we had yeah, I A like like why wouldn't I just type in Ian Hosick? If it's I A Hosick, seems like doing... it's a it's a mistake. It, you probably it... missed so many emails. I don't miss emails, but like hotels really don't like it. Or like when I'm doing online orders uh, or over the phone, I give them my email and I'm like, my first name's Ian. And then I tell them my email and there's no N in it. So it does create issues occasionally. I'm, I'm, you don't know if you missed emails because they just get kicked back. There's probably a whole bunch of opportunities you missed you know, out there in cyberspace. Ignorance that... is bliss. <laughs> You're pro- you're, you seem happy. You seem happier. You don't need yeah. all this too, too many opportunities anyway. Yeah. So we are going to talk about some biomechanics when it comes to running and just running form. And so when we start talking about this, you're kind of like, you know what? I just, I hear a lot of things out there and I just want to clear some stuff up and just want to like go, go for it. And I was like, yeah, I'm down because like in my own experience with running form, like I've changed my own thing, my own like way. So I've done my own personal journey into it and trying to understand it. Like I'm interested in what you're going to kind of say, because I'm willing to bet that at one point I was like misled down this path. Like the more I dive, I've now been diving into it. Like, it seems like I may have thought some erroneous things in the past. So I'm excited to kind of listen into this so I can explain like, Oh yeah, I did think that once, but maybe not. So Let's just kind of dive into it, man. Like you were talking about some of the things you wanted to like kind of clear up or some things that you potentially hear. So I'm just going to let you go. So where okay. where does it well, all I start mean, for you? Let's No, no, no. It, it might be easier for you to say what you think proper running form is or like because you might have these common misconceptions and then I can yell at you about them. That might be. Oh, easier. good. This this sounds like exactly how I wanted this to go. Yeah, so I, this is great. <laughs> Well, I think the the most, like the way I was kind of 
I kind of went about exploring a change in my own personal running form was mostly because of injury related things. Like mm-hmm. my performance was fine the way I used to the way I used to run. Like I was always fast, so I didn't. I don't know if necessarily there was any type of uh, performance issues there. I'm sure there would there would have been in terms of the form, but I, I changed it because I kept getting hurt. Mm-hmm. Like I was always injured, so I I found the pose method to kind of be okay uh, a, a, a way to to that was just packaged well and digestible and like was easy enough to practice so i think a lot of the Mm -hmm. things where i so 180 obviously is a number that they preach about like the cadence so that's definitely something i think when i first started to change the the um my running form i went from heel strike just a straight up four foot strike um and that was kind of a disaster for a while but i thought that was, was the way to kind of do it and then another one of the things that i thought was about like the the push off like not pushing off the back of your f- like pushing off like toe off through the yeah like okay. the way that pose kind of teaches it it's like it all is like pull from your hamstr- hamstrings and lean in so let gravity kind of move you forward mm-hmm. so that you're not pushing off the back and creating like a huge space and i think it all kind of comes down to stride length and that's just was a cue that they used to make sure people aren't having like a big long stride Mm-hmm. I suppose. And those are some of the things that I had kind of thought about for a long time and kind of how I learned to kind of change my cadence around things. So in a really small nutshell, that's kind of the three or four of the concepts that I had really kind of used. So what I'm do you got? so excited to talk about everything you just brought up because there are some things that are beneficial. There are some things that are just wrong. And there are some things that are kind of right, depending on how you do it. Um, first, I want to tell everyone why you should listen to me. Uh, I'm a professional running coach. Um, we'll talk about contact information. I'm sure at some point in this podcast at the end, uh, my wife actually has a master's degree in biomechanics uh, with focus on running. She worked at the Nike Sport Research Lab for four or five years. Uh, if you're not familiar with that place, it's the location that came up with the Alpha Fly, Vapor Fly. All the fancy things that are science-based that Nike comes out with come from that lab. There's different teams. Uh, she was on a team that dealt with a number of different things. She did sports bras for a while. Um, she definitely did a lot with fancy treadmills and running mechanics. And uh, her boss was actually one of the lead uh, developers on the Alpha Fly and Vapor Fly. I knew them as different things back in the day. Uh, I like the fancy Nike code names, but I actually helped test them as well. Uh, during the development process for a number of years. So I've been through all sorts of mechanics. Uh, I have an engineering background, so I understand physics and everything that goes along with that, as well as I have an anatomy background, so I understand how the body moves. Um, Applying those to running is why you should listen to me. Uh, Let's just talk about something that everyone really hits on uh, hard, which is foot strike. And you mentioned you switched from a heel strike two foot strike um or mm-hmm. four foot strike over time. yeah mostly four foot like not even like i was running so much on my like basically on my toes mm-hmm. at a point and i still like i, I still land there now but like mm-hmm. i just would did a drastic i was like i'm not letting my heel touch at all and this was like when i was like maybe 23 all right so i just took like mm-hmm. the little bit of information that i may have heard in like runner's world or something like that and i was like okay heel striking's out yeah. so i just so there, went four foot yeah there was a big push i don't know like a number of years ago to go to more of a midfoot or forefoot strike um, to help with injury prevention. 
And the main reason mm. people were going towards that was to get away from braking forces. And braking forces, for those of you who aren't familiar, is where you land with your foot in, uh, in front of your center of mass fairly far out. And when you land like that, it essentially acts like a car brake and you have uh, friction going against the direction you want to run and that slows you down. Um, it puts a lot of impact on your joints, muscles, ligaments, tendons, um, and bones. You get stress fractures that way. And you, it's really not an efficient way to run. Um, and that's why people, and most commonly you'll see heel strikers breaking. Uh, and that's how those two got linked. However, they are not actually, it's not, it's more of a correlation than causation. Most of the time mm -hmm. you will see heel strikers breaking, but not all heel strikers do break. Um, and the biggest thing with that is you want to avoid that breaking force and start landing under your center of mass. This is like the driving factor behind running. Um, you want to maximize efficiency of momentum and keep the speed you already have going forward. And that involves landing under your center of mass or just slightly ahead of it. Uh, the reason I say slightly ahead is because if you did land directly under your center of mass and kept running, you would fall over. Or if you kept uh, landing behind your center of mass, you would just tip over. Um, and the cause of that is because you do have a slight lean, which we'll get into. Uh, and that way it maximizes the amount of gravity pull. Gravity is going to help you move forward. Um, and that is where the misconception that heel striking causes uh, breaking forces. And then so we have what you did, which is everyone goes to forefoot striking. And you can actually still get breaking forces through forefoot striking. Uh, and by that, you're overextending, but focusing on your plantar flexing when you land. So your toes are down and you're landing out. And that's actually severely inefficient as well. Yeah, that was, uh, and it's like painful to run that way too. Just mm -hmm. like to not like be able to release, like, the, like my, I felt like my calf was always loaded. Like my yes. Achilles never kind of dropped. So I was never able to kind of express that elastic energy from the Achilles. It was just like, and my calves were just crazy. And isn't there something with the breaking forces that, and I think it's just kind of a poor name, you know, as runners, we're like, we don't want the breaking thing because isn't there something with the breaking forces that does help load that elastic energy? Isn't that part of the, like it's, it's not breaking force. It's so, um, when you're planting your foot, uh, you load your Achilles tendon and tendons are really good at as Rich said, as storing elastic energy. So you put energy in there and it's like a battery, a very quick release battery. It holds it. A spring is a better term, not battery. Uh, so you squeeze a spring and that is, uh, holding it. Or in this case, you extend a spring and it wants to go back to its normal state. And when you toe off, and that's what we mentioned earlier, which is when your foot, when your toe leaves the ground, uh, you're using your gastrox, your calf muscles, but you're also using some of that stored elastic energy that you uh, created when you landed on the ground in that strike. Um, that is one of the benefits to uh, midfoot and forefoot striking over heel striking. If you heel strike, you aren't actually loading your Achilles as much because your uh, Achilles and calf muscles are plantar, uh, plantar flexors. And that's why when you land them, you're eccentrically loading it a bit, and then it springs off into that concentric contraction. Eccentric is where you open the muscle. Concentric is when it contracts and gets shorter. 
So help me understand the the energy transfer a little bit because as the as gravity right and you know correct me when I, I'm just gonna start saying words like pulls us to the ground and we're loaded with this elastic energy from the ground as it comes back up. What exactly does that mean? Like how do we like pull energy kind of into our tendon, our Achilles tendon, and our our muscles and tendons to then be expressed back? Like is it like, what does that energy mean? Like when, when we say that. So that energy is, it's not, I don't want to say free energy cause you're already moving. Um, but it's potential energy if you think of it like that. So when you think of potential energy, you have an object a little bit up in the air and it has potential energy. Uh, and then when you drop it, that energy is translated to momentum. Um, and the potential energy is gravity times height. So when you're going down, you're storing some of that energy in in your tendon. It's not true potential. It is potential energy, but not in the case that you're off the ground. Uh, And it's stored there in an elastic response. And it's held there through uh, muscle tension as well as our joints. And that holds that there. And then when we release it and we let our toe come off the ground, essentially our knee and our ankle slash foot is holding that energy in that locked position. And then you, when you release it off the ground and you have two open points or it's less uh, resistance on your foot, it then springs back and shoots you forward. Got it. And that happens every foot strike. And there is a... W- if you're running, if you're running properly. properly. I was just going to ask that. Like, is there a difference in the amount of energy that you are able to to then like capture or like express throughout based off of like the mechanics that we talked about. You mentioned that a heel strike that might be a little yeah. bit further out would be, would get, give you less energy. Mm-hmm. Is that sim- they're, they're not they're, they're getting less energy because they're not loading their Achilles. So if you think about your toe as kind of the outside of the weaver point or the furthest away from your ankle and the heel being, or your heel being very close to your ankle, uh, the lever arm is very short. And in physics, the longer the lever arm, the more leverage you have. Um, that doesn't mean you should forefoot strike on your toes all the time, on your tippy toes. It's not going to increase leverage. But uh, that lever arm does help load that Achilles tendon. There is some stuff that shows, uh, like Kenyans have fairly long Achilles tendons. And tendons have better elastic properties than muscles in terms of storing energy. Muscles are great for being elastic in general, but the the energy that's stored isn't as effective. So that's why uh, people who have like fairly short gastroc muscles or gastroc heads, aka calf muscles, um, as opposed to people who have really long muscles, uh, their tendons are longer and they can actually get a better rebound from that energy. That's interesting. So they're getting more free energy. Is it a surface space thing? Like if you have, uh, like with less surface space on the that on the I tendon, don't know the answer to like if it's a really thick tendon versus uh, flat surface area, I don't. That's a great question. I don't know the Thank answer you. to that. But yeah, you'll see that with um, with like the really high level runners, and a lot of times uh, Kenyans are Kenyans or Ethiopians, the African. Base runners are going to have their, their. It looks like their calves like start and end like an inch below their kneecap. They're just like so mm-hmm. high up there. Exactly. Um, huh. So that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't mm-hmm. know that that was that there was information out there that way. So like a lot of times people are going to say, 
And we've kind of had it. There's nuance, right? There's always going to be nuance behind this, especially in this conversation. But like with mm-hmm. should people be concerned about their heel strike? Should it be positioned more to that midfoot, forefoot or or is it just a pen? Uh, the biggest driving factor, like you mentioned, is injury. Um, so if you're getting a lot of knee problems, hip problems, um, you feel like your ankles locked up all the time and you are a heel striker it might be worth looking at where you are striking and try and shift that toward your center of mass or at least move it towards like more of a midfoot to forefoot strike. But really being aware of where you're planting that foot in relation to your center of mass. And when I say center of mass, uh, I mean your hips and where those are in relation to where you're planting your foot. Um, You don't want it to be really far out. And as I mentioned, you can't really plant it behind you. Otherwise you'll fall over all the time. Um, So just under you or slightly ahead is the goal. And when changing it, something to think about is if you're a really established runner and you don't have injury problems and you are heel striking, I can almost guarantee you're not breaking or you're not doing too much breaking. Um, There were plenty of runners at Nike when I was working there who would come in and they would be heel striking, but they would still be landing under their center of mass. Uh, And they didn't have a high injury prevalence. However, if you are getting injured all the time and you can't train consistently, that would be when you do want to change your gait. Um, And this kind of goes across the board for everything we're talking about. Uh, And I'll touch on that a little later on why in terms of cadence, arm swing, all of those things. Um, You don't necessarily want to drastically change your running form if it's working for you and you're not getting injured. If those two aren't the case, then you would want to change some things. There's certainly ways to make it slightly more economical and efficient, but it can also lead to a risk of injury by changing. Right. Things. And then it complicates things just a little bit. Right. And like, there's to me, that seems to be, there's definitely a learning curve. So it's like, if there's an upcoming events coming, like you might want to wait to, to kind of change things because things will probably get worse in terms of performance and figuring things out before they, they really get better uh, on, mm-hmm. on the performance side of things. And it's interesting. You mentioned that with the, you know, center of the mass, because that is like the, the main driver behind it. It's like, should I not be heel? I know a heel strike, it's probably not right, but it's like, depending on where you're landing. Because I, I worked at um, Brooks for several years. I was on the rep side. And they did, a, they had some study where they mm-hmm. were, they watched every single foot strike in the 10,000 meter Olympic finals or something like that. Some high level running event. And every mm-hmm. strike was different. Like mm-hmm. the way that they landed was all different. So it's not necessarily like there is mm-hmm. one way and you have to make it be that way in terms of performance. So I'm glad that you did mm-hmm. kind of mention that because I think that that's, it's important to keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, and that's really, and you did mention something you said it might be wrong. And that's really where this concept came from, or like not necessarily that, but a lot of people view heel striking as bad and it can be bad. But forefoot striking can also be bad. Like if you're on your toes all the time, you're going to have really tight calves and you're probably going to pull something and your range of motion is really limited. And that can be important, especially on um, the toe-off phase and getting that hip extension, which is where the the end of the running flight phase or the start of the flight phase, end of the um, running phase. And you want that hip to be really far back. If your ankle range of motion is severely limited because your calves are so tight, you can't have a good hip hmm. extension because that could be a limiting factor. Interesting. Yeah, let's, 
Are you following or I'm just talking into the I'm I can get really excited about No, this I'm I'm with you. I want to move that I want to talk about the mobility piece that we mentioned and, and how that all kind of ties together a little bit after mm-hmm. like, kind of tied up at the end to see like how Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, absolutely. Because yeah. like yeah, that that could lead us down a whole different route. But the <laughs> other part that I mentioned was uh, the the cadence, the the magic 180 number. Mm-hmm. Um and I believe this was it's not magic and it's oh I'm going to go off on this one. But Continue. that's like, I think it was an observation. I think this was a Jack Daniels observation, honestly. And then I think that was grabbed by, I don't know. Like, I think the pose method definitely preaches this number. And it just seems to be this nice round thing that that is, you're supposed to kind of aim for, right? Um, and so we're talking about this. It means. Oh, for, but, yeah, I, I'm going to go. dive in. I have so Let's much to say. I have so much to say. Um, I will say, just to start it off, usually a fat, a faster cadence is slightly better. The number 180 comes from Jack Daniels observing a 1984 Olympic thing. I think it was the 10,000. I don't know the event. But he noticed all of these dudes were around, running around 180 steps per minute. And when we talk about cadence, that is the number of steps you're taking in a one minute duration. And so if you're at 180, it means each leg hits the ground 90 times. Um, In this event, when you look at Olympians and really high level elite marathoners or track runners, they're all the same height usually, or very, very close to the same height and the same build in terms of body, like body mass index um, or like, just overall build. They don't have a lot of muscle. They're runners. They got a decently strong high core. calf Their muscles. Very long Achilles tendons. High high calf muscles. Exactly. Um, so cadence and stride length, which is how long of a distance you take in every step uh, while running, are very heavily related. And they are actually functions of things, not driving factors. So if you go back to algebra you have two things. You have the X, which is uh, the input, and then the Y, which is the output. Cadence and stride length are outputs. They are not inputs. So when you when you go into 180, um, that you're using it as an input, and that is not the case. It is an output. And that is related to how big you are in terms of limb length. So height is a driving factor, as well as how fast you're running. Um, those are the main things that are going to dictate your stride length and your cadence. Uh, 180 steps per minute is great for people who are around 5.7 to 5.9 and can run uh, 4.50 pace for 10 kilometers. If you can do that, you should absolutely be running. If you're that size and you can run that fast, you probably should be running around 180 steps per minute. However, if you're like the rest of the 99.99% of the population who can't do that, 180 is not for you unless you're shorter. Um, and that would be where that would come into play. Like if you are a shorter individual, you are going to be taking more steps and increasing your cadence because your stride length is shorter because your limb length is shorter. Um, you tracking so I'm with far? You. And the, uh, cause I'm thinking about it. It, it, it just seems packageable. Right, it just seems sellable. One eighty, you know. Oh yeah, 
I'm not saying it's a bad like marketing thing in terms of like if you're just looking at it from the marketing sense. However, it's not right. And uh, before this call, I was looking up um, an article that actually summarized it outside online. They did a study uh, looking at the 100K World Championships of hmm. individuals, and they looked at the men's field, and they took 12 athletes, and they had their cadence over the four to five hours, whatever it was for the duration. Um, guess what number they came out with as the average cadence for those 12 for 100K? Men. Yeah. 168. 180 steps per minute. Yeah, it was just about, I think it was 182. But when you look at the individual, each individual runner. They're all the same. The graph was all over the place. No, no, they're all over the place. Sorry, I didn't. You said the average and I just thought about it. Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, yeah. Between the 12 people was 180. However, when you look at the data of the individuals, no one actually ran at 180. Oh. It was like 155 up to like 190 or like 200 based on the height of the individual so, and the pace they were running. They were all relatively close in terms of pace because world championship stuff. But there was that huge variation. And so you can't just look at the average. You have to look at the individual data as well. And that goes for everyone in the world as well. Like we're not all... Five eight and run a four fifty ten k, and so this is where it's so easily easily like cherry picked, right? Like someone could see something yeah. really quick and be like, okay, the average is one eighty, and and you know the the variance in it is so so drastic, but it doesn't. It's just mm-hmm. it's just not. It's just so open to interpretation and nuance of things that like the putting this average thing. There's enough information to point to that is taken out of context, essentially. Yeah. Um, and I mean, Jack Daniels, he's like one of the most respected running coaches and uh, groundbreakers of the sport. So when he says something, a lot of people are going to take that and be like, oh, this is the golden truth. Um, whereas he was just watching an Olympic event where there was a very isolated group of individuals. And he said, oh, these guys are running at 180 steps per minute. However, he's also said that athletes he works with, and when people run slower, their cadence goes slower. He understood this. People just took his words and misconstrued them, which happens countless times throughout history, um, from running to whatever. Uh, And that's another thing, that if you're running slower, your cadence is also going to be slower. If you've ever tried to run 180 steps per minute at a 10-minute pace, and you're 5'11", like me, it feels weird like you are taking the smallest strides you feel like you're going to trip over your feet you got hummingbird feet roadrunner feet it's weird so you're obviously going to slow down on that um when i'm running faster on my fast tempo days or high intensity efforts i'll get 175 180 but that's very fast and i'm about the height of those individuals so when put, putting this into practice then would you say to not even worry about a cadence number that it's so personalized that as long as you are landing in, in in a more advantageous position, then that should be a primary focus and not necessarily about the actual turnover. Yes. And the, I actually did a cadence study when I was at Nike um, in the Sport Research Lab. They brought me in, they set me on a metronome, and they first had me run at my natural gait at a certain pace. 
they pulled my cadence from that. Then they shifted the cadence down several ticks, percentages, and then they shifted it up. Um, and they had me on metabolic equipment to measure how efficient I was running. What get, if I were to tell you that, uh, what would you say was my most efficient cadence out of those numbers? Was it below the one I naturally run at or the one above? That was the most efficient, probably the nat, like the natural one, what you felt was. Hmm. Exactly. And as human, humans are really good. If you listen to your body, it has a lot of ways of telling you what's efficient and what's not efficient. Like I mentioned the 180 steps per minute at 10 minute mile pace. If you try to do that, that's not very efficient, but your body, if you don't force something naturally will gravitate towards the most efficient thing. If you're running with fairly good mechanics, uh, to start that you have to have good mechanics in order for that to work. So like, you can't be breaking, you can't be like having a really weird uh, back extension and anterior tilt of your pelvis, um, but you will naturally gravitate towards that. However, it can be advantageous to uh, start upping your cadence in small increments to see if that feels better. Oftentimes, individuals will run slower, and then upping the cadence, they'll feel that it mm. feels better. And I think that that's where the cadence can be um, a helpful tool is to reduce like the the like a quote-unquote overstride or like that those breaking forces just because there is mm -hmm. so much that pe people are kind of reaching out a little bit like typically someone's cadence like who would you look as a like someone who's overstriding on their heel is probably gonna be like what do you think 160 or something and that's pretty high of I mean, it depends on height yeah. of individual like if the person's five two 160 might be really right, low for them. Right, right, right. So I think that is just a way to kind of help people bring their stride closer to the center of gravity. I think it's an effective tool that way. Yeah, you you nailed it on the head. Um, as we just mentioned, stride length uh, and cadence are directly related. So if you if you're running the same pace and you increase your cadence, you're going you have to decrease your stride length. Otherwise, you would start going faster because you'd be covering more distance in a faster in a, the same mm -hmm. amount of time, um, therefore going faster. So it is a great way to help train shortening your stride length and getting rid of that breaking force. Um, that that's a fantastic tool, but not necessarily needing it to be one specific thing, because like you're, you're going to be a better judge of that than any arbitrary number that's been kind of put out there on average to the masses. Exactly. Interesting. So it's, yeah, it, it in so this is a very big generalization and everything we've talked about height um how fast you're running play into it but in general usually between 160 to 170 maybe 175 if you're running faster or shorter that's what you'll really see as the most common most economical cadence for individuals hmm. so it but that's a fairly big range and also covers like the the average height and average paces of yeah. individuals for me personally, I think I've probably been under striding for a while because I wanted to be as close to that number as possible or not. I didn't really necessarily want to be that way. I just kind of fell into that type of rhythm that that was mm -hmm. it would typically be between 178 and like 182. I would never do the metronome work or anything like that, but just on like any type of run, that's mm -hmm. where it'd be. Speed work would be a little bit faster. Um, but yeah, I've probably been under it a little bit as, as I'm six foot tall, but that's just kind of like the whole the pose thing and just like trying to like lean into everything that mm -hmm. way um 
Yeah. So what else? What else are you thinking? Because uh, I want to talk about like the practical application of it, like how to. Because we've been touching on that a little bit, and and, and how to kind of put this in practice for yourself as an athlete. But what are some of the things that you're hearing that, or that you, that you want to kind of push back against or things that, um, you know, generally people should avoid, I guess, or, or not avoid. Yeah. And well, in order to get there is we have to talk about the forward lean. We've mentioned it a couple of times. Um, and you've mentioned it with the pose method. Uh, when running, you want to be maximizing free energy, like we talked about, and utilizing gravity. Um, so in order to do that, you want to have a very slight forward lean instead of being completely vertical. Uh, that way, gravity is helping you fall, and running is just controlled falling at the most efficient state. Um, downhill is a great example of that. If you lean back into the downhill, you slow down. But if you're running downhill and you lean into the hill, similar to the grade of the hill, you're going to go a lot faster. And that's just utilizing that energy. Um, so when you want to run, you want to have a very good alignment all the way from your hips up to the top of your head. What I'll have athletes and individuals do is just pretend the strings on the top of their head. They're pull, it's pulling them from the top. And that way you have good posture in your spine, um, your torso and your hips. You don't want your hips to be anterior rotated, which is where they rotate forwards. So if the top of your hips tried to top of your hips tried to touch the top of your toes, that would be like an example of anterior. Right, rotation. Like your lower back's and curved then, a little yeah. bit. Like that's that. That's when you would get that anterior. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. Yep, and then you also don't want the inverse of that, which is the posterior uh, tilt. And that would be if your back is rounded and like you're squeezing mm -hmm. your core like really, really hard if you were doing like a sit up or a crunch. Um, you want to have a neutral pelvis is what we call mm -hmm. that. Um, and so then you're in that nice standing upright position. If you were to fall over or like just pretend to fall and then catch yourself, that's usually the position and maintaining good alignment of your torso the entire time and you catch yourself and continue forward uh, while running, that would be a fairly nice, easy way to mimic how to run properly with that forward lean. And that's actually a drill I have people do to help practice the lean, is you'll, you'll get in that alignment position and you wanna have a little tiny core engagement to help prevent rounding of your back. Um, usually that helps with actually anterior tilt mm -hmm. or get rid of that just by squeezing your core because it engages you, pulls you in more. You don't want to like be doing like you're about to do a deadlift. You don't want to lock it down, but you do want some tension. Um, so you get that position, you fall forward, and then you continue running. And that's the easiest way to teach the forward lean. And when you do that, it automatically, uh, if you don't think about it, you don't overstride. So with that lean, it also helps prevent the breaking force that we've talked about. Um, and usually it'll transition to more of a midfoot or forefoot strike, but as we mentioned, that isn't always the case, and you can heel strike uh, successfully. This feels like when this is like honed in and on point, it feels like running is just much more gentle. You know, it doesn't feel as like this huge like pounding or this huge force or like this big hustle of a movement. Like if you're if your lean's on point, and you're just kind of replacing that uh, that. Um, each foot to control yourself while you're falling like it feels way better 
uh, how, what do you see mm-hmm. people doing when the the, the forward uh, lean is not dialed in? Like, what does it look like, or how does it like feel for people? Would you say it's different for everything? Um, I did a running clinic before the pandemic happened, where actually I had this woman. We taught her the forward lean drill. She was killing it. Everything looked ph- phenomenal. But she was still like overstriding a little bit and heel striking. I was like, what is going on? It turns out after a few minutes of talking with her, she was actively flexing her toes to the sky. Whoa. During flexing. Yeah. During running. And that's a thing people do. I didn't know that. If you're out there, you'll see people that have holes in the front of their, on the tops of their shoes. They'll, they'll wear a hole through that. I wonder if that's, that's probably why. Yeah, And so that really cued me in on while you're doing this, you want to be relaxed. You want to have a relaxed facial position, relaxed body posture, your shoulders relaxed, your core can be slightly engaged. Um, You still want to be going through the running mechanics, but your ankles should be relaxed and nothing should be overly stiff. You're utilizing it. So it's not like sprinting or accelerating out of the gate where you're actively creating force and acceleration. But while running, you want to be utilizing as much free energy as you can. And that's the energy of momentum and gravity. Uh, so continuing forwards and it should feel smooth. You shouldn't be working overly hard. Um, you shouldn't feel like really high impact or joint pains. Um, you mentioned it's just like flowing. Uh, I did this, we did a little bit of this right uh, before Seattle with Johnny Linolima when I was working with him back in the day. Um, and I, we just went on a little like gravel road and I was like, we need to fix a few of these mechanics. Like, this is what I want to see. And we went in from like, just like a 20 foot section. He hit, he hit like four thirty, like no problem. He was like, this is weird. It's, it's free. And like, I feel flowy. It's fast. Um, and once you hit that sweet spot, you can just go and it, you want to go fast um, something to remember, though, is the more you lean, the faster you're going mm-hmm. to want to go. So the faster you're going, the the greater the lean will be. So let me ask you about, well, to go back to the toe situation again. And this is the cue that I kind of use, again, personally. And I have, I've seen some drills and used some drills and prescribed them a couple of times. And like how to utilize like your big toe and like where that should kind of play into the fact. Because like when I... When I kind of get into trouble with my landing is if I start landing a lot on the outside of my foot and it kind of creates some swinging internally and I get some hip hip flexor stuff where like just my feet will get kind of beat up. But if I cue myself to drive that big toe mm-hmm. down as I'm uh, landing, it just kind of levels out my foot, for lack of better terms, and just feels like I'm landing straight down. Is mm-hmm. there any merit to something like that or are you worried, are you concerned about how people's foot is actually approaching the ground? That is a fantastic question and leads me into something I wanted to talk about. Um, so Thank you're you. killing it, Rich. Uh, it's most common for people to land like you on the outside of their foot. Um, that's not a big deal. It depends. What's the major thing is what your foot does after that and the severity of how much you're landing on that. Um if you're landing on it and then coming onto the middle of your foot or the medial side and then rocking in and then becoming to a level position and staying stable there, that's great. 
However, if you continue on and do uh, uh, essentially your arch collapses, that's where you'll start to develop shin splints and posterior tib syndrome, um, which can eventually lead to stress fractures or stress reactions. Uh, and usually the most common thing for that is runners and just people in general have really weak mm. hips. Like our abductors, or essentially when you're trying to take your legs, your toes and spread them apart away from your midline are very weak. We sit a lot. We don't do much lateral motion unless you're in ball sports. Those guys have a lot stronger hips. But if you're a runner or cyclist um, or you do something steady state in what's called the sagittal plane, which is just the plane that runs uh, through the center of you and it goes forwards and back and you don't go side to side, you just go forwards and back, you're not working those muscles very much. And they're really weak and they cause you to plant more medially or more towards your center line. When you do that, you're naturally going to strike on the outside of your foot and then come in and then collapse. And if you, depending on the shoes you have, as well as how strong your lower leg muscles are, they're gonna start to get fatigued over time. And that's where you'll see a lot of injuries result from. Something that is really funny, hold on, I'm almost there. <laughs> uh, something that's really funny is CrossFitters have hilarious running gaits mm -hmm. all the time. Like some of the things they do with their hips and backs and arms and neck, everything. But something they do really well is they strike mm -hmm. under their hips because their butt muscles, their glute meds and their uh, TFL and their abductors are so freaking strong. They have to control that load um, and make sure their knees don't buckle all the time. So they have really strong muscles and you'll see them planting directly under their hips, which is actually where you're going to get the most force generation. Right. They have an appreciation for, for like force generation and for form. And, and like they're spending a lot of time with their legs under their hips. So they might just intuitively kind of land that way. Um, but I want to talk about the, the shoes a little mm -hmm. bit, which like, like you've kind of mentioned everything and, and kind of how we got to this point of just having weak hips and like the shoe companies kind of came in and figured that like, let's fix this for people and shove a wedge in the shoe to like, so mm -hmm. that these people, so that you don't get that collapsing over, which essentially like operates as a crutch more or less. Do you agree with that? Exactly. Oh, a hundred percent. We have weak feet and weak and yeah, hips. and so when we start to kind of do that, and, and I think shoe companies, I think they just had, you know, everyone's best interest at heart. They wanted people to run, you know, figure like they weren't probably going to go to the gym or get stronger hips uh, or stronger feet. So it's like let's give them a little crutch so they can get out there and do it. But like, yeah, if you have any type of like really firm like posting in your shoe, and it used to be really common. It's it's kind of gone away from that, I think, in, in terms mm -hmm. of like the scope of how people are, are typically yeah. running. But it used to be everybody was in it. With they they yeah yeah they call them stability shoes. Like you usually have uh, neutral shoes, you have stability, and then you have there's a third one that's I can't remember what it's called. It's like over oh motion or control like that. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's it. Motion control. They want to control the motion of your feet. Um, but essentially they. They put something under your arch so you don't collapse down as much um, is the main thing of what they've done over the years. Uh, where you'll see this actually become a major problem is in road shoes. Road shoes tend to be a lot softer. And with softer foam comes more range of motion. And the main problem is, is if you have a greater range of motion, you're putting more stress 
on those muscles and that those ligaments and tendons and insertion points on bones and that motion repeatedly over and over fatiguing it is what causes those issues uh the one i'm referring yeah. to is shin splints if you're if you're a runner there's most likely you've had shin splints um you're and it's the roads cause them more often and that is that it's a higher impact but it's also you're getting more range of motion because road shoes are a lot they have a lot more cushion and they're usually softer. Yeah. So like, that's a whole, like you kind of need to take a huge step back and just kind of reevaluate if you're, if you're really, if you're getting shin splints over and over. And this is, I kind of have a gripe about this and I do, and we'll kind of get in, get into this, this next part is I want to talk about what we can do so that when, when we land, after we land, like how we can control that motion that's going on outside of shoving a wedge in there. But anytime any runner goes to a PT, doesn't matter who the runner is, the PT is telling them like one thing. It's like, you have weak glutes. So like, that's like the one coverall they give everybody. And, and probably because that's the case a lot of the times. So like, but like, how would you, so what does that kind of look like then in practice for like gaining that type of control? Like what kind of things are you prescribing to help people with that, with controlling that motion that's happening during the stride? First and foremost is everyone should deadlift. Hell yeah. Properly. In my that's that my opinion. Deadlifting every single human on the planet unless you have like weird spinal issues um should be deadlifting. It is you're, great, you're a big great for your core. Great you're a trap bar guy, right? You got both? Oh, I do both. I do straight bar I do straight bar for OCR cuz it really works my core and it helps with heavy carries mm. specifically. But for runners, trap bars are great. Um, and also single leg deadlifts are coming a close second if you can't do that. And there's easy ways to do kettlebell stuff uh, for single dead, single leg deadlifts. Just Google single leg kettlebell deadlift or like there's so many different variations out there. Um, and then the second thing is you see all those funny exercises that runners do all the time on the internet, like Instagram people. Uh, they're walking around like ducks and they got their bands on their ankles or their feet and they're moving funny and they're usually sidestepping or going forwards, maintaining uh, their feet under their hips like we talked about, but with resistance going to the middle because they have a resistance band. Those are the other things that are really, really helpful to help control this, um, strengthen those abductors. Yeah. And yeah. I like the banded stuff a lot. I like banded stuff um, that's going to be like kind of like those are. Just the banded sidesteps and like the monster monster walks and the tightrope walks, they're just kind of boring. <laughs> like I like I like to do them just because you can kind of <laughs> feel it working, but they're just freaking boring. So I, I kind of like to to layer in some things that are you know more uh, like a Palov press, like having a band against a, a rig or something like that, and so it's like like a counter uh, mm -hmm. anti rotation is what I'm looking for. So you kind of press it out and you have to stabilize mm -hmm. your entire body all at once. So things like that, like anything that's banded mm -hmm. against some sort of rigs that's pulling you back toward it, I think is is a good way to kind of go about that. You like to do um, yeah. like split squats too, right? Like, do you do regular? Do you like to do regular squats at all, or you kind of do split squats, lunges, and and like Bulgarian squats and things like that? All of the above. I do weighted box. I do weighted box step ups. I do front squats. Uh, I'll do goblet squats, I'll do pistols, I'll do Bulgarian split squats, I'll do weighted walking lunges. Yeah, those are like the ones I do. That yeah, <laughs> that's, that's all of them. So like, and with, with that in mind, like, you know, we're talking, 
we kind of led into this at, talking about injury prevention, but there's also like a power generation piece to this. So mm-hmm. do you separate yeah. those two or are they kind of one in the same in, in terms of strength training for you? It can cross over for sure. I mean, usually you're not going to get a lot of power generation from doing like banded right. sidesteps. That's going to be really focused on injury prevention. Um, however, no, now, now I uh, correct myself, that will help you have a more a strike under your hips more, which does help power generation. So I guess I'm, it, it's a combination of both across the board. How would Because you, um, you are strengthening those hips. And uh, an example for those of you listening is just if you put your feet together in front of you on your midline and pull, try and do that versus if they're under your hips and then pull hip width apart, um, like pulling toward yourself, one's going to feel a lot stronger than the other. Pulling, I'm sorry, pulling, what is the example? Uh, so if you think about, if you're doing like a hamstring yeah. pull and you plant one leg medially and then like try and uh-huh. pull toward yourself with your foot on your midline versus then put your fit foot uh, under your hip squared up so you have really good alignment and then do the pull you're going to get a lot more uh strength in that and that's that's a good point too because that'll help um really kind of hone in how you can kind of create that stability during a run right like what feels stable Mm -hmm. like with each kind of planting down um and is that something you'll think about as well because i'll kind of do the same thing i'll land and try to control my you know my adductors and try to engage in them as i'm driving down and essentially what cue like that we use for like squatting is like knees out which essentially means like don't allow your knee to collapse Mm -hmm. in but just like cueing it as a way as a as a positive is a little bit easier so like knees out and so to help engage your your glute with each time you're landing down so the band would really kind of help that right it definitely does. And actually a cue I'll give athletes is, and something you've touched on earlier, mm. is the big toe. Um, if you think about balance and stability, usually your big toe is something that's going to be really uh, helping increase that and driving it forward. Um, so if you think about engaging your big toe some, and then also squeezing your, your ass cheek or your glute. Um, so those two, in order to really lock something and create a stability, a stable foundation, um, is to drive your big toe down and then squeeze your glute or your butt at the same time. And that, like, if you do that, it's, like, hard to bring mm. your knee in. Like, obviously, your glute is a driving factor, but your big toe helps with that neurological pathway driving down your leg. Um, and it's just more active engagement. And usually when you're doing that, when you're driving your big toe down, you are engaging your arch more, which is helping increase that stability. And that's what we want to do with all this is stability and then have good alignment along with the alignment piece i'm glad you brought this is like just have me remember like if you one way to kind of cue this and just like really solidifying how like a stride length would have will affect how powerful or how much you'll be able to engage in your your glutes is like if you try to step way out in front of yourself and try to flex your glute and then pull it back like you you, you if when it's out in front of you you just can't like you can't really flex your glute at all. It's when you pull it back, you start to really kind of feel that you can actually have it engaged, which kind of goes back up to our first point about the, the where you're landing. It's all connected, dude. 
It's crazy. Exactly. Exactly. And it all works together. There's, I mean, I'm not saying there's one way our body is supposed to work, but there are patterns that create efficient movement. So, and that's kind of how, how I see it too. Like there are all these different pieces that we've talked about, but ultimately like when you start to move and slide one part of it in one direction, like other things kind of follow, right? It's not isolated. It's not like Mm -hmm. a deadlift, for example, like you can have like your feet driving through the ground as one cue, but your back can still be rounded, right? Like one's not necessarily helping the other, like in a golf swing, they're all kind of like these different parts of parts that are all, Mm -hmm. you kind of have to do all at the same time. But like running, it seems like things are kind mm-hmm. of they kind of meld together, and it's hard to really do something way out of out, like out of like what would be considered good in isolation. Um, so like starting mm-hmm. down this road at all, like you're probably going to improve across the board. So like, where would you start? Like, if someone wanted, what's the easiest place for someone to really kind of help this? Like, if they were to go out for a run this afternoon and want to do see about improving their their form like where would you put them first uh kind of going on what you said on everything being connected with running um i would watch what good Mm. running looks like and there's two places i always point people towards that are fairly accessible first is children just go creep on some children and watch them run they have not been trained incorrectly on how to run but kids, kids run really efficiently because we ha- they haven't been in shoes mm. for their entire life, and they haven't been trained to like run 180 steps per minute or to do these certain things. Minus the fact that kids always go out. And talk <laughs> don't get pacing from them. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Don't get pacing advice, but their mechanics is really good. And then the second is uh, Elliot Kipchoge who is the world record holder for the marathon. First guy to run sub two in a marathon um, in a controlled setting. Uh, His gait is like, run like that. And when you watch him run, it looks like he's just out for a jog, unless he's in like the final mile of a marathon or something. Um, It's so fluid. It's so like controlled, but it also looks like he's not Mm -hmm. trying. It's just natural for him. And it, he does everything we've covered. He's got, uh, he lands under a center of mass. His hips are fairly wide. They're, is he, he's a marathoner, so they don't work on that too much. Um, he has extremely long Achilles tendons. No one at home, don't try and go lengthen your Achilles <laughs> tendon to make it work better. Um, but I would watch someone run, and then I would find, and it's not one thing you for people who are looking to help change themselves, the biggest thing is to make sure you're landing under your center of mass. So doing that falling drill of starting um, and then continuing running in that leaning state is the best way to go. But also just film yourself. Uh, We have smartphones now that have absurdly good cameras, especially with slow slow motion capture. Film yourself, try and get it from the side. If you can have a friend or someone else go along next to you and they can get you while you're running um, and have the camera follow you instead of just going by the camera once. Um, and then go back and like compare yourself to a kid running or compare yourself to Elliot uh, and look at where you would see hmm. differences. And that, cause it's really hard. 
if you don't know what you're looking for to see where the problems are or to feel where the problems are, especially if you're an established runner and been doing it for a long time. Um, I'll do gait analysis on myself. And this just is gait analysis for those of you who may not know. Um, you film someone running and then look for ways to make them more efficient or any uh, cues that you can give them to provide a better gait pattern. Um, and like, I, this is a plug for me and my business. I do gait analysis. So if you are curious, uh, hit me up on social media or Ian at hosickpe.com or Ian at hosickpe, Ian at, yeah, it is Ian at with an N, com, which is not, email. I'll link Sorry, to it, but yeah. not with, with, oh, okay. with not an first N. First yes. First Sorry. I have, initial. Okay. I have multiple, I have multiple okay. emails. It is Ian at hosickpe.com for my business. Email. We'll link to um, it. Yeah. Hit me up. I'm, yeah. We'll link to it. I'm happy to do that. But like, uh, just looking at that and like, just look at it objectively with what we've talked about. Um, especially if you have a thing to compare it to, which would be like watching Elliot run or a kid run and you can see where the differences are. Obviously you're not running like 447 pace for a marathon, but you can still see large variances. So the, um, the, yeah, so <laughs> that is a great point. Just like seeing yourself. A lot of times if I've ever, if I've done help somebody with this and recorded them, a lot of times the first thing they say back to is I've never seen myself run. So it's like, that's really the first place to start. It's like, mm-hmm. see what you're kind of working with. I definitely agree. Um, and so I have a couple more questions. How are you doing on time? You're good? Cool. I'm good. Um, I'm good. How does this, so I want, how does this change on like a, you're a grade of running. Like if you start going up, does it stay the same? Uh, if you're going up, you're obviously your stride length is going to decrease because you're not going yeah. as far. Uh, because there's, there's stuff in the you're way. You're usually yeah. going to shorten your stride unless you, yeah. Usually you're going to shorten your stride a little bit and increase your cadence some, not a ton. Um, depending on how you run up it, you could switch to bounding mechanics which is very like your cadence is going to drop and you're really increasing your stride length. Um, Killian will occasionally do the uh, Robert Killian professional obstacle course racer will occasionally do this in shorter Hills. It's not really sustainable for super long efforts um, unless you practice it a ton and you know that it's efficient for you. Uh, and then you, it's actually the nice thing is I'll have people practice the forward lean mm. on Hills because it's when going uphill, it's so much easier to get into that leaning state because you're essentially falling up the hill. And then obviously you do have to take into account the fact that you're going up uh, in height. So it is a little bit more energy required, but it's easy to get that lean well. And that's, you also, I will prescribe hill intervals with focuses on form so they can experience that. Got it. So there's nothing tremendously different in in the mechanics themselves so like if you start going up you shouldn't necessarily switch unless you're going to do the bounding to me that sounds like that's with a really experienced or they'll probably have to have grasp on how to do something like that but like things kind of stay the same going up pretty much you are going to short like your stride length like i mentioned naturally um shorten and your cadence is going to increase a little bit more it also depends on the grade um Actually, once you get to really steep grades, power hiking is more efficient than running. Where does that sw- um, where does that switch? Because I've seen some numbers about this. Like, if you are going this pace, walk. Like, how do you know when? It is pace and grade based, as well as like how 
trained. You are on that pace and that grade. So just good. So it's not like a one answer, but like I would probably say above, uh, probably thirty five percent would be power hiking, which is yeah, very which steep. will which in like the Spartan circuit, what we'll, we'll see that at Big Bear, and is there anywhere mm-hmm. else that you can think of that would be steep like that for a consider like I think Palmerton has spats of it, but nothing that's going to be yeah maybe. I think those would be the only two venues. And I mean, you'll see, it depends on the duration of it as well. Like if you can get away with being inefficient, but going faster with running mechanics, you're probably going to do that on a race versus power hiking because there is the psychological aspect. I agree. I was going to ask, what do you do? Do you see a grade? (laughs) Do you have a plan for a grade when it comes to uh, hiking versus running? Or you just, because I'm pretty much just like, I'm tired now. I'm going to walk a little bit. (laughs) Like, or are you kind of more strategic? It, It depends. It's a bit more strategic. Um, if like I'm near an individual and I want to try and break them, I'll keep running and try and drop them. Um, depending on how I feel, if I know I'm like above redlining, then I'll usually cut it back and not do that. Uh, it also depends on how long we're going to be hiking or running up the damn thing. Um, I I am strategic, but it also comes down to like exertion and how far we're at. This is more tactics based than like yeah. Uh, when it gets to a certain yeah. point to kind of kind of walk it out okay cool and downhill is it like just the opposite like your your stride length will increase just because you have gravity kind of on your side now exactly yep mm-hmm. exactly and one thing with this though is so mechanics are still fairly similar <clears throat> however the percentages of muscle activation so which muscle groups you're using and like how much you're using them uh, like the quantity of fiber engagement or yeah, the mm-hmm. certain muscle groups does change. So with running uphill, you're going to use quads uh, a lot more heavily than if you're running on flats. Got it. Huh. So that's just a matter of like preparing that, preparing yourself for that, right? Yeah. And just having this, that's more of a strength side thing. Um, and the same with downhill. Downhill is going to be heavily more heavily quads as well. Uh, to help control your descent, but it's the eccentric contraction instead of the concentric, which is why your legs Completely feel trash. like death after running. Right, so if no other reason, prepare yeah. just so you're not ruined for the week next week. Um, mm-hmm. And help help me understand the alpha fly situation. Um, did you listen to uh, Bracken's breakdown of of the different things that he did? I didn't. But I did. I did hear they talked about him, and I was frustrated because I. You would have loved it because he, he did a really good job. Like he he wore three different pairs of shoes, and did uh, kept it as close to controlled as possible, and just like kind of did a little bit on mm-hmm. pace, a little bit on effort, and just wore you know he wore the Alpha Flies, he wore the Carbon X, and like the Skechers Razor or whatever. And the Alpha Flies were obviously mm-hmm. the best. Like spoiler alert, they're going to be the best shoe mm-hmm. for sure. What what are <laughs> What's going on? Because I, I have a, I have a pair and it's – and I warmed during this workout one time and I was running faster than the pace that I I thought I should be in, in like my zone. And it felt like I wasn't even getting the appropriate stimulus from that workout even though I was running faster. I was like, this is easier than what I wanted it to be. Yeah. Um, what's going on with them? So the big thing with the footwear and specifically Vaporfly and Alphafly is they help with fourth – force return 
slash retention. So the force you generate in each foot strike, you're getting a very high percentage back out of the ground. Um, and that has to do with two things. One, which is the primary thing, is the foam. They created a very special foam that has very high uh, force return. So if you dropped a marble on it, the marble would bounce back almost to where from what you dropped it from. It's that good. Um, it will. It will be like that. Foam. I that. That's, oh, you're just I don't saying know like that that's for sure. Okay, that's an example. I was like, that what? Is, <laughs> I, it might. I, um, and then the second thing is the carbon plate that they put in them, which also helps with force return, but it's uh, has to deal with flexing it, and then uh, it's essentially. If you think about it, more energy being stored again, uh, similar to the tendon where you flex it and it allows for more transfer to be sent from, like if you're a forefoot striking, uh, it sends more back. So there's le- it's a more rigid surface and then you can store more energy in your Achilles tendon. So like does your then, so I've heard different things. Of- and the shape of the carbon plate is very important. And that's something that well. they really kind of dialed in, right? They like really kind of nailed the shaping of it. It's not just a slab of carbon fiber in there yeah oh yeah absolutely so when i was first testing it out they had like different shapes and variations and i thought it was they i thought they put in one of their zoom bags or like the air bubbles in the shoe and i was like the air bubble on this <laughs> one feels different than this one and it's like more under my arch versus under my forefoot and like moved it around and i would explain why it felt different and for like i don't even know how long in the initial testing i thought it was a damn airbag like let's not tell so them. we're not telling them <laughs> and they're like then they're they probably thought it was hilarious, the testers who I was friends with. And then finally, like, yeah, it's a carbon plate. And like, I'm still going to call <laughs> it like... an airbag or a bubble, a bubble. And I still call it a bubble. Um, but yeah, those are the two driving things uh, to help all of the force you keep. So you're not having to essentially re-accelerate every step or you're, you're having to use less energy to keep the same momentum. Um and therefore, that less energy allows you to run faster because you're more efficient. And does your then running, f- like, so if you have, because I've heard different things, and it kind of makes sense, like, uh, some people who have their running form might be more dialed in or more efficient will get an extra boost from this? Or do you think, do you think the Correct. improvement's the same Correct. across percentage-wise across the board? Or do you think it is disproportionate towards someone who might have a more effective running form to begin with. Correct. So like everyone's going to get different gains from it. Like I was actually on the high end. How many percent? Were you like, are they the seven percents for you? Those ones were. were. The four percents were. I was six or seven, 6.8 or something like that. Like there was a very significant (laughs) amount. I was like, wow. But that was that was the vapor flies. That's not even the alpha flies. The alpha flies was even more than that, um, which is a lot. Like those are moon boots. They're in crazy. My opinion. Um, I don't know if I ever got percentages for that one, but uh, they were very. Um, it did depend on gait pattern. You're still getting benefits. Uh, because of the foam and plate, but like I would say, more midfoot to forefoot strikes. This and this is me personally. I don't have research. I don't. I don't have yeah. the exact research behind it. But I did know there was variation. So this is me shooting from the hip um, and just my observations. I would say 
midfoot to forefoot strikes are going to have a greater percentage of efficiency gain. But heel strikers will still get one. Um, one, because you have the magic foam, but two, even on toe off, that energy transfer coming from your arch, or not your arch, sorry, your ankle, um, that rigidity does help. Yeah, they work, man. <laughs> they just work. Oh, um, yeah, they do. <laughs> well, cool, man. There's a reason. Uh, I think it was the LA Marathon or whatever. Was it LA? When they gave them out to the athletes. Oh, it was the, free. It was the Olympic trials, some, I thought. Like, yeah, okay, it was Olympic trials, yeah. Um, and they athletes who had never worn them before, ever, in their life, still ran in them. I think it's enough. Like, if you are on some, like, middling, if you have, like, a sh- like a marathon or at the Olympic trials and you have, like, a shoe deal, like, you know, maybe they give you some swag, maybe a couple, some money here or there. I think it'd be worth it just to throw that to scrap that deal just to wear those because your improvement will be so significant. Oh yeah. Absolutely. And the the big thing is though, like I would only recommend that for individuals who had trained in the Vaporfly leading mm-hmm. up to that race. Um it does because it's a fairly high stack height and it does like it changes your mechanics slightly a bit in terms of lower leg stuff to be slightly more efficient. Um, based on how the carbon is shaped. Um, again, I don't know the research behind this. I just know this is what I felt. They're weird, man. They feel the funny. Uh, they're, they're weird. But it does work your le- lower leg muscles a oh, lot more if you go and do hmm. faster stuff. Um, not a lot more, but you will notice they're a little bit extra sore or tired or fatigued. So as long as you had trained in a shoe sim- kind of similar to it, like the Vaporfly and then going to the Alpha Fly for the race – that's a close enough thing. However, if you had never done a race and just wore like, I don't know, there's so many different, any generic road shoe and then went to that shoe for your marathon, I would, you'd probably not be very Yeah, that's a good point. At mile 20, like you'd probably feel really good up to like mile 18, Hmm. mile 20. Well, we've covered quite a bit. So I'm sure like we'll think of things to to need to kind of double back on at some point and we'll, we'll, we'll just do that. But what's been going on with you? How's training? It's going well. Um, I actually was in Boise, Idaho with Ashley Heller, uh, another um, OCR pro uh, visiting her because they have dry trails and we have snow. That's on crazy. Um, <laughs> here in Driggs, Idaho, we still have a lot of snow. Uh, I went for a tempo run this morning and I think I managed to get into the aerobic zone because there was snow on the thing I was running and it was like an ankle shattering nightmare. I didn't roll my ankles, felt great. Um, but yes, we still have a decent amount of snow here. So I did a couple weeks of training in Boise. I, I came back yesterday. Um, I did my first race since the pandemic, which was down in Houston, Texas area. And that was a savage race. That was my first savage race. A lot of fun. Highly recommend it. A little bit more dynamic obstacles, challenging obstacles, than what you'll see at your uh, average Spartan race. Yeah, how how did you like it? I've never done one either. Just like for no reason, just other than the Spartan schedule just gets demanding. You know, it's just like another race at, at a certain point. So I've never yeah. really have gone out of my way to do one. Mm-hmm. You like it? Really? I loved it. Oh, I loved it. I yeah, I got into obstacle course racing like on weird. Uh, local events in california and then kind of transitioned to spartan 
but I've always been drawn towards the more obstacle heavy or like technical side of obstacle hmm. course racing. I'm not the most efficient at it. I'm still working on it. Um, like I'm not going to be Aaron Newell or VJ going through rigs, but I'm still better than the vast majority of competition. Uh, and I've always really, really liked it. And this was kind of going back to that, uh, which is really cool change of pace. I didn't, I only, I failed the rig once at Saturday, the horizontal, which was me just the being cheese board. The, head. the cheese, what? the cheese board. I, so it turns out if you go down it like underneath it and grab like directly underneath instead of going on the side, it barely <laughs> moves. And then if you go on the side, it tips like, over. Someone's like, you almost snap <laughs> that thing in half. Um, and it's really weird. But yeah, I failed it. I was it was a close race and then lost a lot of time, obviously. Um, took second place, very happy with it. Uh, and then, I mean, just kind of seeing how races play out in the future with the fact that we're still in a yeah. pandemic. I do get my second shot of Moderna on Thursday. Sweet. Though, I so get my second exciting. one on Monday. So, so what? Oh, nice. I'm fully expecting to be. I'm a little worried sick. about it. Are you going to like take off Friday and just kind of like chill? See what happens. If I have a fever and don't get out of bed. Cool. Yeah. Um, I I am going to be, so those of you who are listening, tune in to my Instagram channel because I'll explain why this ha is happening and it's not because of nanobots or 5G or the fact that you're actually getting a virus. Seems unlikely. You. I, don't, I, 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 don't, I don't foresee you disproving those things. Um, <laughs> the, uh, but just the, the, the Savage one again. So did you lose time on that rig? Is that how you um, like lost? lost the race i uh, i was the guy who won uh jared flank had been doing savage for yeah. three years i think finally uh three years he, he finally got the win um great athlete i was just inefficient on like all obstacles like he would put a second on me per wall and i now know how to do walls really good and fast because after losing this race i went home and practiced um, just like over walls so now i'm good at walls but it's just overwalls, just like how to get over hmm. them quickly and efficiently and not, and like not stop completely moving and then climb in things like just a lot of, a lot of small things that added up. And then obviously the rig, uh, I lot like that was probably 30, yeah. 40 seconds where I did it, failed, recollected myself, got back on, did it again. Yeah. The, um, ran. he has been doing just savages. It's funny. Like, he's actually from my hometown. He, yeah, he's several really? years younger than I am. Like, right? I think he's only what do you think? Twenty four, I think. I think he's twenty six. But he's like from that. like this little town in. How old are you? Are just you 40 about now. Thirty. Uh, Thirty five. How old are you? What are you? Thirty one. Yeah, I'm thirty one. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, I don't, dude. I love being thirties. In my thirties is great. Thirty five has been at least right when cuz i just turned 35 i was like wow that's a that's a different number 31 is n it was no problem but 35 is like oh huh there's not very many okay. there's not I'll many very many mind. pro athletes across the board like lebron's a year older than me and right now what he's doing is like insane because of his age and yeah but endurance sports is different Ga galen rupp's my age like, so most... still hanging on yeah yeah um well cool man what do you got next uh, right now I'm debating on Montana. Still haven't figured it out. It's really close and I'm registered. So if I decide the day before to go show up, 
That's your Definitely. that's your spot, man. Not, that's your race. Whatever. I really enjoy it. I mean, it's great to see my mom. It's just like it's pandemic's yeah. a weird thing. Um, but I will be doing for sure Utah Spartan race in July. Yeah, it's July. And then I do have a 24-hour adventure race uh, in my valley locally no in Drake, Idaho, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, that's going to be intense. I'm doing it with my wife, her twin, her twin sister, and then a friend of ours. Uh, I'm the most fit person on it, so it's going to be least miserable for me, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be miserable. Is it like navigation and everything? Like... Yeah, so an adventure race is you have map and compass navigation, uh, and then there's just random little flags <laughs> in the of the woods that you have to go Can find. you do that? Are you good at that and stuff? That's... Oh, yeah, I'm great. <laughs> so that'll be fun. Yeah. Um, but I've never done night navigation, so that might be a new thing. Might be some wrong turns in, in your future. Yeah. yeah, and it also is different modalities. So there's mountain biking, uh, running... Um, I think there's, this one has canoeing or kayaking. There's some open water stuff, uh, lake, lake wise, not like real open water in the ocean, but yeah, it'll be fun. Nice. So yeah, it just kind of seems like everybody else is trying to get through and wherever you end up, wherever you're able to go, it's kind of how it's going to go. Are you going to do Tahoe or OCRWC, you think? I am planning on actually. I am doing OCRWC. Nice. I'm very excited. I didn't do that in 2019. Um, that was actually like the last overly cha- like when the obstacles are fairly challenging. That was the last race I did in 2018, um, where I did stuff in London. So I'm very excited for this. Yeah, it seems like that's going to be the spot. Tahoe is going to be just open for anybody. I mean, if if you want to go make some money there, go for that's it. True. But- the real people will be at OCRWC. <laughs> yeah, that'll be that'll be fun. To see how things kind of break out. Which I'm one are sure. you doing? I'm not. I'm not quite sure. I'm. I think I'm going to be on the West Coast. Uh, my fiance and like her best friend are going to do the San Francisco Ultra, which is just a marathon twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the weekend before mm-hmm. Tahoe, so I might just kind of be there. But I'm trying. That's fair. I mean, that yeah, totally. And it's like to get to Vermont, like from here, it's a drive. It's not bad. Um, I love Vermont. Vermont's great. But um, mm-hmm. but yeah, just come back and go back up. I'm not sure. And I've been training for more like the High Rocks Decafit stuff, at least in this early part of the season. And there's a, a High Rocks in LA that mm-hmm. next weekend as well. Um, so I got three options. We'll see how it shakes out. I got to get back on the mountain to see how it goes. Are you going to LA? Next weekend or like later in the year? Later Obviously in the year. That like same weekend that Tahoe is, there's a high rocks in LA. Yeah. So yeah. there's some options. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, cool. So yeah. we'll see. Um, but yeah, man. Well, cool, dude. Well, I appreciate you popping on, letting us know about the running stuff. I think this is a ton of tremendous value. Make sure to link to your to your um, uh, your website and your, your email address so when people want to learn a little bit more about the gate analysis, they have a path to find it because it's, it's a really helpful thing. It's a really helpful thing to just even like, invest a little bit in because it can go a long way. So you should definitely check that out. Yeah. Yeah. I hope I piss people off. I want to get on another thing and we'll have like a battle royale. Of we should find out. We should find an adversary for you and we should have a, uh, a debate. Well, I didn't, I didn't say, I didn't say Diaz's name once, which I was really <laughs> proud of. Yeah. So you made it all the way through. <laughs> <laughs>
Cool. Um, yeah, I didn't, I don't think there, there was really nothing else. I mean, there was a couple of things I had written down, but it's not as important. Like we didn't touch on vertical oscillation. We didn't touch on arm swing. Um, and we didn't touch on proprioception.